And hello out there, and welcome to the DeMarco Polo Show on KUCI FM 88.9. We're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus, and airing on the web at KUCI.org and iTunes College Radio. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. I'm usually here Wednesday mornings at 9 with Writers on Writing, but this is my summer show, and I'm fun to have it. It's... uh, a show that focuses on Southern California people and issues of the area, and today my guest is Dan Dooling. He is the narration scriptwriter for Pageant of the Masters in Laguna Beach, California. His plays have been produced throughout the U.S. Monstrosity received stage readings in 2011 at the Odyssey Theater in West L.A. and the Skylight Theater in Los Feliz as part of the Incubator Reading Series by the Catsellis Theater Company. Before that, Monstrosity also received a staged reading at Innovation Theatre Works in Bend, Oregon. Dan received his Ph.D. in drama from the University of Texas before moving to L.A. He's also an actor, director, and long-standing member of Equity and SAG. His theater criticism has been published in the L.A. Times, L.A. Herald Examiner, and L.A. Weekly. In 1997, his feature screenplay, Last Lives, was produced by Promark Films and premiered on the Sci-Fi Channel. It's available on video and shows on the Sci-Fi Channel three or four times a year. And as I said, he is the narration scriptwriter for Pageant of the Masters in Laguna um, that is on right now, that takes place every summer, and we're going to be talking about that quite a bit. So let's bring him on. Hey, Dan. Hey, how's it going, Barbara? Great, great to have you on. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it sure is. I I always like talking to you, and I always find out something new um, about you every time we talk. And what I found out new this time was that that you wrote the Beavis and Butthead Party Trivia Game CD-ROM. Now, tell me about that. It's a checkered path. And I, it's like I feel like you've, you've, you've ambushed me with, a, with a, a part of my past that actually I'm quite proud of. Uh, it happened through a series of circumstances through some of my work with various actually sort of startup companies for new media at that time. And uh, it was the first uh, in, inspired Comedy Central uh, show that was developed. I mean, the show became the inspiration for... Uh, an attempt at essentially a video game, a party trivia video game, where um, because of people I had worked with through Comedy Central and uh, Viacom New Media previously, they contacted me and said, we need someone who understands the world of Beavis and Butthead and could <laughs> come up with 200 trivia questions that would be appropriate for fans of Beavis and Butthead and understand the mythology of those those unique uh, characters. And... Uh, I sort of bluffed my way into uh, making a case that I had a good sense of of what that sensibility <laughs> would require, and uh, came up with two hundred questions about uh, all manner of things, mildly inappropriate, but never, uh, you know, past the PG sort of thing. And it, it today seems so unbelievably innocent and trivial by uh, comparison with some of the things that are out there now. But uh, you know, it it, it is a, a reality of a working writer's. Uh, life that you get a chance to work with someone and if you're lucky they want to work with you again or they tell someone that they work with that you'd be fun to work with again and, and it was uh, you know I I have it proudly sitting on a shelf along with uh, the very first Nickelodeon inspired uh, what they called a graphic novel video game called Are You Afraid of the Dark 
the tale of Orfeo's curse, which was, uh, uh, you know, again, groundbreaking in some ways, and amazingly, <laughs> if I can add to that, there, this is some 20 years ago, but there is a Facebook uh, group that created itself to celebrate the joys of this DOS-based, uh, you know, essentially text-based, uh, you know, prior version of a video game based on the the television show Are You Afraid of the Dark? Mm -hmm. And I was the story uh, creator for that show, and, and not for that show, but for that video game. And so I've, I have my little footnotes and asterisks in the history of early video game development. That is funny. That's just... <laughs> <laughs> There's more I want to talk to you about regarding other work. Um, good, <laughs> I'll, good. Keep, I'll keep you in suspense as to, as to what, well, what that is. Well, it might be so thoroughly destroyed at this point. But, uh. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, you know, when I f found out that you wrote um, the script for Pageant of the Masters, um, we were, we are both in the anthology Orange County Noir, Yes, and probably you, so. you have a short story in there. Actually, that short story is not on your website that I could see. Now, why is that? Um, I <laughs> I thought there was a link on the website. I couldn't find again. it. I just okay. wondered if it was too dark uh, for no, for no, your website. No, not at all. I, I thought it, I thought I had had posted it on there. I'll have to make sure there there uh, there should be a link, and it should be there as a text. Um, file link uh, mm. so I am surprised by that well um, in any case in any <laughs> case <laughs> in any case you write the script for Pageant of the Masters yes, yes. T tell us how this all came about uh, did you bluff well, your way into this too uh, not so much because <laughs> when I first heard about Pageant of the Masters it was literally a call out of the blue in 1981 from the director at that time Glenn Etchison who was looking for a new scriptwriter and had called a mutual playwright friend of ours and she had said that she was not available to do it but that he should call give me a call and he, so he's calling me and I was at that time living up in Highland Park in Los Angeles and he's describing the Pageant of the Masters uh, with its celebration of art through Tableau Vivant and a living uh, theatrical production that has a symphony orchestra and live narration and I'm just thinking this sounds absolutely absurd that uh, that this could possibly be done as anything other than some kind of community theater uh, enterprise was just hard for me to believe and ultimately he convinced me to come down and, and watch a rehearsal and as soon as I saw the Irvine Bowl there in on the Festival of Arts grounds and got that incredible feeling uh, under the night sky that, that that setting has, I realized this was a very special venue, and then I saw that they were doing with Tableau Vivant a level of stage illusion that really was um, second to none, for lack of a better uh, description, and I thought, well, this does seem kind of interesting, and at that point... Uh, we had follow-up discussions, and I submitted an example of, of a script that I might write for one of the pieces, and out of that uh, came a 15-year collaboration with that director that really was one of the highlights of, uh, you know, my career, certainly there in Laguna Beach, surpassed only by the last 17 years with our current director, Diane Chalice-Davey, who, if anything, shares even more of a, a common theatrical sensibility with me uh, about what we think 
one can do within the parameters of Tableau Vivant and also for a general public entertainment that is both surprisingly sophisticated, exquisitely executed, and really so much of a one-of-a-kind uh, entertainment that you really find yourself not only at a loss for what to compare it to, but how to describe it to anyone and make them, if they've never seen it, think that it's anything other than ridiculous. And I kind of accepted that a long time ago, and I just now say, you have to see this to believe it. And uh, that's one of the most fun things, is always inviting people who've never seen the pageant for their first time. And I think last year was your first time, was it not? Or at least certainly in a, in a, in a long time? Well, actually, the year, I think when O.C. Noir came out two years ago, that was the first, or actually two the second ago, time, right. but really the first since my son was really, really little. And um, so it was sort of like seeing it all over again, um, like seeing it for the that, first time. That it, it has in the last, um, you know, 15 to 17 years since Diane Chalice Davy became director, really grown uh, in terms of its theatrical uh, sophistication and execution and we've had the advantage of some technological upgrades which even though we still pride ourselves on doing uh, theater the old fashioned ways there's still a place for what I think are wonderful additions like uh, video segues and interstitials which allow us to enhance sort of the presentation of pieces especially if we're trying to tell the story of an artist's uh, life or create a sense of the environment in which the art was created and uh, and this year show the genius which is the theme chosen by our director uh, is shaping up to be one of the most popular and successful shows either uh, ever and that's not uh, me just hyping it that's sort of the word that I'm getting from sources uh, in many different uh, places that, yeah. that it's just uh yeah, for for many different reasons, is a particular favorite for a lot of people. Well, I found, and again, I, so I've been there. This was the fourth time ever that I uh, I saw the show, which was, I guess, about a week ago. And I found it. I mean, I always have liked your writing. I've always liked the narration. And before I knew you, I wondered, you know, who did this? How is this done? Because it's always just so interesting and, and, you know, you want to listen, you want to follow it. And this year, though, it was also more emotional, I think, than I've experienced before. And then you put the narration with the, the works of art with the music. And, and, you know, s- some of the pieces were, were tear inducing, you know, you just sat there and go, okay, well, what? this is just so good. <laughs> Oh, that's the highest compliment I could could ask for, and and it's very much um, a part of what we hope that we can accomplish when we set out to put together the selections of pieces for each show is that the combination of narration and music and and stage artistry will be greater than the sum of the parts and will hopefully have and create emotional uh, connections with audiences and uh, this is an emotional show this is a is a show which deals with in many cases very somber moments from the history of art that also uh, showcases some of the great minds not only in in the 
graphic or visual arts, but also in music and in our sort of sub-theme of the impact of technology on art, uh, a tribute to the great minds of astronomy and, uh, and how they have been represented in various artworks, including a tribute to um, that wonderful institution up in Los Angeles, the Griffith Observatory. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so to find some place like the Griffith Observatory be so cooperative and so enthusiastic about doing whatever uh, they could to make our tribute to the artworks that adorn that uh, remarkable uh, edifice and the grounds there uh, was was gratifying as well because it also sort of says that the the pageant has established a reputation for doing sincere work and work that uh, ideally benefits not only the audience but also uh, whoever is the recipient the recipient of our you know personal tributes in the show and uh, this year more so than than just about any uh, year that I can think of in my 32 years as scriptwriter, um, this is a show of the great masters, and the genius really is not that much of an overstatement when you look at Leonardo da Vinci and Vincent van Gogh and Michelangelo and Bernini and uh, even Norman Rockwell, who has really seen a critical reass- reassessment in the last two decades that indicates really his uh, critical uh, rejection essentially during most of his career but then when you finally had a chance to survey his work and realize the extraordinary technical uh, mastery that he had as both an illustrator and someone who was a fine artist and then the scope of his work and the really the the portrait of our culture that emerges from looking at it you know in a museum setting or something something that really adds to its the sense of attention should be paid and you have some of the greatest critical writers of you know current day saying you know it's time that attention were paid to Norman Rockwell as as one of the great uh, American artists, mm-hmm. and and so it gives us a broad spectrum. And uh, as part of the the overriding theme of the genius, um, Diane Chalice Davy, the director, intended this show to be a, in a sense, a companion piece to our 2009 pageant, The Muse, which was a celebration of women in art and the emergence of women artists. A show that is particularly dear to my heart, and this is the masculine equivalent to that. So it's not like we're saying only men can be geniuses, far from it. Uh, my task as scriptwriter, at least on one level, is to emphasize the fact that the glass is half full at all opportunities during this show, so you don't think about who's left out, but you focus on who we included, and we think that there's a good reason for everyone and every artwork that we have included there, but we also look at it as not the definitive statement about artistic genius, but really a meditation on what that can mean, how it has manifested itself, and really some of the ideas that other people have said uh, about what it is to be a genius, and wherever possible this year, I really focused on my search for salient quotes from the artists themselves, because I felt like it's so presumptuous of me to make 
grand statements about most of these extraordinary artists that it makes more sense for them, in their own words, to lead us into the world in which they worked to give us a sense of what was at stake for them, what was what mattered to them, and ideally some sense of their character and personality. And in the case of someone like Van Gogh, who we uh, have the opportunity with three different artworks to do more of a suite in tribute to him that with the original score music written by one of our composer duos, a uh, very wonderful score for it, uh, I think really without playing to the cliches that one associates with Van Gogh, hopefully encourage people to see in, the, in his personal struggles and in his triumphs and also the irony of his his agony to uh, to really give a sense of what it was to be in his shoes and mm-hmm. to be attempting to be an artist in that world at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you can guess from the way I go on and on and on, uh, this is just a, a great treat for me to research and write about this artistic process, these artists who are, in this case, better known than, than necessarily some of the artists that we've paid tribute to in the past, but are um, really just rich stories that, uh, to me, falls the challenge, and to my wonderful narrator, Richard Doyle, uh, of a live narrator. a very compact statement about uh, each one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a live narrator, which is interesting. You know, I, I don't think I knew that uh, when I went many years ago. I thought it was just taped or recorded and just kind I of... I think flooding. that a lot of people, uh, even with him stating at the beginning that he's speaking to you from the booth at the back of the bowl, that a lot of people still assume that it's it's canned, and occasionally if there is a, a hiccup or a, a slight uh, misstep, uh, it's just like, you know, someone accidentally moving on stage... It's a reminder, mm-hmm. hey, this is really live, and it's a tribute to Richard that he is such a professional and such a perfectionist that you rarely uh, sense of anything except his superb control mm-hmm. and emotional uh, investment mm-hmm. in the text. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a, as a writer uh, and as a playwright, that's really the most you really can hope for is mm-hmm. someone who will will take your words and hopefully improve on them by making them as communicative as possible to your mm-hmm. audience. Yeah. Um, you are listening to, to, I want to say, Writers on Writing. I'm so used to saying that, but this is not <laughs> Writers on Writing. It's the DeMarco Polo Show, and it's 88.9 KUCI-FM in Irvine, and I'm talking with Dan Dooling, who is... So many things, but right now we're talking about uh, Pageant of the Masters, for which he writes the script and uh, the narrative script. So um, we're going to take a break in a few minutes, so I, I don't even want to get you started on on giving us a glimpse into the process of um, of the pageant. So we'll talk about that when we come back, but okay. maybe before we go to break... Um, I read something here in the in the program about uh, the fires of uh, the wildfires of '93 um, almost reaching the pageant. So they were in the hills there, huh? Oh, that was an incredibly dramatic uh, period and and traumatic too. We uh, those who remember the Laguna fires and all of the houses that were destroyed and all mm-hmm. of the loss of of property 
will remember that the fires came racing down through the canyons and literally were licking at the um, stage house there in the Irvine Bowl. Hmm. And all of these systems, all the fire trucks, were so beleaguered and so overextended because it was on so many different fronts. Mm-hmm. And the fires and winds were just out of control. And the director, Glenn Etchison at that time, and a handful of volunteers and um, staff members got out uh, literally garden hoses and went to the edge of the bowl and tried to fight back and delay or postpone the uh, uh, possibility of the fires actually encroaching on and possibly burning down the stage house. And just about the time that they were ready to give it in and uh, give up, the uh, there was a, one, a lone fire truck that showed up at the festival grounds and hooked up its hoses and was able to... Hmm beat it back and save the uh, the theater. Otherwise, it really would have been, um, you know, probably the end of the pageant for at least a year or so. And uh, then the iron, ironic twist is because this, the hillsides around it had been denuded and were basically covered with black ash, uh, two weeks later in the middle of the night, three-quarters of an inch of rain fell. And that just turned into a wall of mud and ash, which came roaring down, overwhelmed the drainage system, filled up the orchestra pit to the point where it blew out the back wall of the orchestra pit into the costume areas and all of the the offices and our little research library and, and spaces like that, the, the makeup and uh, areas. We, we found hand jars of makeup down on Main Beach afterwards, mm-hmm. but it was it was five hundred thousand dollars worth of damage to the structure of the uh, the theater, and only through an unbelievable, uh, epic uh, undertaking by volunteers and by the director working around the clock, were we able to not only put together a makeshift um, rebuilding of the downstairs area, but continue to rehearse and put on a show that summer, which was a, a real triumph for the uh, community of Laguna Beach and certainly for the Festival of Arts and Pageant of the Masters. So it's uh, it's one of the most testing, uh, greatest tests the Festival and Pageant have ever faced and also one of its, its true community triumphs. Mm. Wow. Well, anyway, we have a lot more to talk about. <laughs> so stay right there, and all of you out there, you stay right there, too. We'll be right back with uh, more Dan Dooling. Don't go anywhere. And welcome back to the DeMarco Polo Show on KUCI FM 88.9, broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus, and on the web at KUCI.org and iTunes College Radio. And you actually can listen to uh, any show here on your phone you go to the KUCI website and the upper right hand corner you click on one of those little links and uh, you can listen immediately it is so wonderful I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett and I've been here with Dan Dooling and before we bring him back on let me just say that the song we played at the beginning of the show and the song we played at the break is Lisa Haley the disc is Joyride and uh, her website is lisahaley.com and uh, She's a new discovery for me. I hope you like her. Let's bring Dan back on. Hey there. Hey. Okay, a glimpse, uh, um, a sort of a nutshell glimpse into the making of the pageant 
as far as beginning, I guess, in the fall with with the script or with how the theme for the next year's show comes about, and then, you know, what happens next? How when does the writing start, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, well, <laughs> next year's theme has been selected, but uh, I don't want to take anything away from the genius that is currently showing every night there at the Festival of Arts, uh, and hopefully something that your uh, listeners will want to check out. We're very proud of the this year's pageant, and word of mouth seems to be uh, justifying the year worth of work that basically uh, Diane Chalice-Davy, the director, and I started um, really last summer once last year's show was up and running, uh, beginning some research into the upcoming theme. Next year's theme will be the big picture, and I'm really not in a position to elaborate on what that means because during the next few months we'll be really addressing some of the ways in which that theme, we can flesh it out and make it a great skeleton for which we, from which we will build and shape next year's pageant. Um, but since next year will be the 80th anniversary of Living Pictures at the Festival of Arts, um, we will certainly be taking into account that it's it's an important anniversary for our one-of-a-kind show and fitting that into our own sense of uh, the big picture without hopefully uh, spending too much time patting ourselves on the back. Um, the uh, research this, this summer uh, toward next year's show, as with last year toward this year's show, really begins with selecting pieces that might possibly inspire a connection with the theme. And uh, with that, the director and I begin to compare our lists and kick things around and think about moments in the show and how, how best to take advantage of those unique performance and production opportunities. And um, we also have a volunteer research committee that has a time in the early fall where they get together and present us with their own suggestions based on their own preliminary research uh, around the the upcoming theme. And there's usually some great brainstorming ideas that come out of that, and pieces that end up in the show ultimately uh, sometimes come from there as well. Uh, throughout the fall, it's really pretty much the director and I um, putting together different configurations of pieces and selections, seeing how connectivity can be created or encouraged, seeing how thematically or conceptually or artistically things can be united together as little mini-specials, for lack of a better term, and uh, we present our selections to the uh, membership of the Festival of Arts and the board in late November. Uh, at that point, uh, we really hopefully feel like we're very confident about starting production and uh, having the casting process in January. And by that time, as I, in my dual capacity as rights and permissions coordinator, I've also begun to contact the individual institutions and image rights licensing organizations that we work with. And in many cases, I have over the years now established good working relationships so they're uh, they don't have to ha I don't have to start from scratch and explain to them what it is we do and why it should be considered uh, a great opportunity to be included in the pageant of the masters and uh, uh, 
with those selections. The casting in January is a volunteer uh, extravaganza, of usually about 1,200 people who come out and say, in essence, we'd like to make the pageant a part of our summer experience. And of those 1,200, as many as 500 will be asked uh, because of their appropriate dimensions uh, <laughs> for the tableau mm-hmm. to, uh, to be cast in the two complete separate casts. And my deadlines as the writer really are the first to come down the line. Uh, I used to be focused on finishing the script by May. Now I have it finished by mid-April because as I finish and the director approves, uh, say, a section of the script for either a painting or a, a sculpture or a series of them, then we send it to our narrator who makes an audio demo, which we then in our conference calls and meetings with our composers, uh, the composer that's selected to write the music for that piece can score directly to Richard's demo. And this is a huge step forward from the old days when we used to uh, have to have the narrator come in toward the end of the production process and record the entire show, at which point the uh, composer then had been scoring strictly to script without benefit of the actual narration, and it just, uh, it seems to me that the the marriage of music and narration has benefited enormously from this little technological uh, opportunity that we've taken advantage of. And uh, so with that in mind, uh, finishing the script uh, in a timely fashion echoes down through or uh, resonates through the rest of the process, leading to, in June, the completion of all of the music demos and the beginning of orchestra rehearsals, the beginning of tech rehearsals and walkthroughs, and after our first complete full dress tech rehearsal with all elements in place, the next night we perform it in front of uh, an invited audience. So our second full dress tech rehearsal is done very much uh, as if it were a performance with a real audience, mm-hmm. and uh, that puts a great deal of priority on organization and anticipation of any kind of problems that we might encounter, say, in terms of scene transitions, uh, all of the things that uh, really the, the wonderful tech director that we have, our lighting designer, our video uh, designer and uh, audio engineers, all of them working in tandem with the orchestra rehearsals, hmm. put together the show. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Okay, now this year there were there there seemed to be a lot of sculptural pieces. Is that is that uh, how it is sometimes, or did, am I just noticing something that uh, that is I new? Think, I I think this year because there were a couple that were so spectacular, the uh, Armillary Sphere by Paul Manship and uh, the San Francisco uh, Monument to Mechanics Monument, which is uh, really, they're both just rather jaw-droppingly stunning in their scale and in their you know grandeur. Uh, it, it draws attention to it, but actually the proportion of sculptures to paintings is 
within one or two either mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Fairly, fairly uniform. You really want to establish a variety of pieces so that, that you, you have a real sense of contrasts and oppor- staging opportunities. Uh, I, I don't think really if you were to count them up that there were significantly more sculptural pieces mm-hmm. this year than, than in previous years. Certainly, um, I think at this point, uh, Diane's radar and mine as well would have gone off and we would have said, mm-hmm. oh, we've got, we're top heavy with sculpture. Well, you know, I wonder then if it's more of an emotional reaction because, again, I found this show so emotional and, and for instance, the Pieta, when that came on, that with the music, it was so emotional and it just, it, I, I suppose maybe it, w- it could have been sort of a, you know, that sort of reaction to, um, to wonderfulness. Well, you know, our our intention is to present uh, every artwork in an appropriate context where it can be appreciated with the intention behind it expressed as eloquently as we can. And in the case of something like that, simplicity really is the key. Uh, uh, the narration leading up into it is very modest and very minimal so that the music of a Maria, mm-hmm. one of a, a piece of music associated so strongly with that particular sculpture, essentially takes it away, and and you leave it to the audience to invest their own emotional relationship with the piece and whatever that connotes uh, to them. And uh, I would say the same in, in in many ways to the wonderful music that was written for the two. Titanic monuments, which mm-hmm. given that this is a year for a centennial of the sinking of the Titanic, and there's been sort of uh, an oversaturation of things about the Titanic, I'm really proud of the fact that our piece, our presentation, is very uh, simple and straightforward, and yet in some ways I think especially because of the, the combination of the visuals and the music and uh, the wonderfully understated narration by Richard, um, I find it very moving, and uh, I, th- I think our audiences do too as well. And and then, who can listen to just the uh, a simple recounting of Vincent Van Gogh's life and not be, uh, you know, emotionally touched by uh, that struggle mm-hmm. and, and what it represented? I loved how the uh, images, the the paintings, the self portraits, one blended into the next, showing sort of his uh, progression. In the years. I want, yeah, I want to give special credit to our video engineer, John Shergi, whose two uh, morphing sequences, plus the opening credit sequence really at the beginning of the show, really topped themselves. I mean, he re- outdid himself in terms of, I think, making a great contribution to the gravitas of the show and to, as you say, that, that wonderfully evocative uh series of self-portraits by Van Gogh, which really sort of chart uh, the many moods and, and sort of the dissolution of that spirit, uh, and yet how it, uh, you know, how he persevered through that short decade where he did all of his work. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, I cannot even talk about it without being moved by it, because as much as it is a familiar cliche in the theme of the tortured artistic genius, there is at the heart of it the story of a man who made an extraordinary sacrifice 
in his devotion to his art and uh, that's that's very powerful stuff mm-hmm. You're listening to uh, the DeMarco Polo Show. I'm with Dan Dooling. He is the narrative scriptwriter for Pageant of the Masters in Laguna Beach. And it is such a show this year. You've got to see it. Um, man, I, I love, too, after the break when, when the pit sort of opened up or, or I guess the, the something came down and we saw the, the opera singer doing, uh, doing her song, um, you know, along with the art that was being shown. I, that was wonderful. Thank you. Uh, that was, again, a, a choice by the director and I think really motivated by um, encouragement from the festival board that we look for any opportunity to really feature and highlight uh, the marvelous contribution by our pageant orchestra. You know, it's a, it's a union hire. These are professional musicians playing in an extraordinary venue. We have uh, absolutely an extraordinary soprano, one of the up-and-coming opera stars, uh, as our special guest this year, and her contribution as the singing the aria, the Queen of the Night aria from uh, The Magic Flute, mm-hmm. or at least an excerpt from it, is, is certainly a highlight. And by keeping the pit door in the down position, which basically means in the mm-hmm. open position, we're encouraging the audience to really not only celebrate the great composers that we're paying tribute to in their in the artworks, but also to the uh, the great musicianship on display and under the uh, the wonderful uh, conductorship of John Elge, who is uh, really a, a wonderful um, stabilizing force and great professional collaborator to have mm-hmm. uh, conducting the orchestra. Yeah, and you know the other thing it does is. Is w- the same thing as when you know you see models um, in the paintings move a little at the end or the beginning. You see them put into place. It kind of, as as one of the audience, it draws you in. You know, it lets you kind of see, get a glimpse of ha- how this is happening, how this is put together, and and it makes it even more interesting. Well, it's uh, the inclusion of some movement during the transitions and keeping the curtain open during transitions is something that wasn't invented by Diane Chalice Davy, but it was certainly uh, heightened uh, during, I'll say, our regime rather than her regime, just because it's something that I also embrace as a theatrical opportunity that we would be remiss in not taking advantage of. It's, it's a great chance to let the audience see how the illusion is created without spoiling the illusion. Mm-hmm. I think of it as the magician showing you how he's going to do the trick and then still managing to do the trick in a, in a magical way. Mm-hmm. And uh, quite frankly, our designers and uh, the uh, creative forces in terms of our technical execution of the tableau are second to none. And um, what a thrill it is to work with people who, like our tech director, Technical director Richard Hill. Uh, it's just a terrific uh, sense of freedom to know that you can trust that they will do extraordinary mm. work. Uh, Mary LaVenture, our costume designer, is uh, works so for Disney and for so many other uh, places. But here at the pageant, I think she really showcases what a what a great creative force she is, and um, 
And amazingly, these are all people who are a pleasure to work with. This is really the cliche of the, the theatrical family mm-hmm. is absolutely true at the pageant, and I could not say that without including our amazing volunteers. The, the reason the pageant has continues to exist and continues to thrive is because we have volunteers who come back year after year after year and want to make this a part of their summer and and really make it possible. And it's why you don't see a pageant at Disneyland or a pageant in Japan or a pageant in Vegas. It's because they cannot replicate mm-hmm. what we have from years of tradition where people realized not only is it tremendous fun to be a part of the pageant experience, but it is also something that you can really be proud of being a part of, and uh, that it keeps all of us in a professional capacity very humble about what it is we do, but it also is a big part of our sense of we need to let them know whenever we can how much this is appreciated, because without them, the show really um, does not exist. And, uh, you know, if we're talking about things in, in Southern California that are uniquely Southern California, it's hard to think of something yeah. more so than the Pageant of the Masters. You know, I wanted to ask you about The Last Supper, too, because The Last Supper, the painting of The Last Supper, always ends the pageant. How did that come about? In 1936, uh, then in his second year as director of what he had decided to call The Pageant of the Masters, Roy Ropp, who was a local contractor, realtor, painter, and a businessman. Um, he really had a vision, along with his wife, Marie Rupp, of how this could be a, an actual performance production with music and narration and backdrop, painted backdrops and a real attention to detail. And he ended the 1936 pageant with The Last Supper, and it was such a phenomenal you know, moving moment for the audiences who saw it, that it created a groundswell of national publicity for the pageant that made everyone say, oh, you've got to come next summer and see The, mm. the, the Last Supper by Leonardo at the end of the, the pageant. And Roy Rupp, being a savvy theater artist at that point as well, said, this is the way this show should end with this classic masterpiece from the Italian Renaissance that in all ways epitomized for him the his agenda, which was to honor and celebrate with all due respect the great works of the master, uh, master artists of the centuries. And um, in that regard, it became a pageant tradition that was just sort of accepted. I, I will say that in my 32 years, for the most part, and for most of the performances, it was the perfect icing on the cake, but it also in some ways felt like the epilogue, especially in the theme shows, where it was not the logical extension of mm-hmm. the theme, but was in fact a reiteration of pageant tradition. Mm-hmm. And, and whereas that's perfectly well and good, this year, with the genius, the placement of Leonardo and the Last Supper as the finale, it makes absolutely perfect conceptual sense. Mm-hmm. And I have a, what I consider a wonderful quote from Leonardo that helps lead into it, that really makes the point and brings us full circle in the contemplation of the genius 
to to think about what an important milestone the Last Supper was and how Leonardo truly was the ultimate Renaissance man and unequivocally by all definitions uh, you know the epitome of what we think of when we think of genius mm-hmm. and uh, and so it, I think it's more moving this year than ever before not just because it's back after one year of, of being um, set aside for last year's theme only make-believe where we felt that the surrealism of Salvador Dali's Sacrament of the Last Supper was a, was a more appropriate element of production. Uh, this year, the uh, the two casts of the Last Supper who've been together for years and years and years, in some cases decades, are happily back, uh, ending the show on I think a particularly resonant note uh, at the end of uh, a second act that um, I feel has. Mm. Uh, a great deal of emotional evocation of uh, the lives of artists, the uh, the soul of the artistic experience, and the ways in which art, whether we know it or even acknowledge it, has the ability to touch our lives. Yeah, it sure does. And I wish we had another hour. And, and sadly, <laughs> sadly, we don't. We have to go. But Dan, thank you so much for. Uh, being here talking about the pageant, and uh, I, I do encourage everyone to uh, to get there and see it this year. It's it's stellar, really is. Well, your work is stellar. Every single night through August thirty first, it seems like a lot of performances. The tickets are truly uh, flying out of the box office, and uh, for anyone who has not seen it, I ask you to take the leap of faith and come to the Festival of Arts and the Pageant of the Masters. The festival is celebrating its 80th year this year as well, and it's truly the place to be this summer, and uh, we're very proud of the genius. And, uh, Barbara, it's always a pleasure, but if you ever bring up Beavis and Buffett again, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll have to start going through your uh, your hidden archives as well. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, and uh, we'll be talking soon. It's a pleasure, and, and uh, any opportunity I have to uh, come out in support of your work, I, I look forward to. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. That was Dan Dooling, and uh, he's the narrative scriptwriter at Pageant of the Masters. It really, truly is wonderful. I uh, I wouldn't say it if I didn't think it. And uh, we're at the end of our time. we got to go. His website is dandooling.com. Mine is penonfire.com. Wednesday on Writers on Writing, Authors with Marie Stone, 9 a.m. right here. And uh, so much going on you can find on the website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a great week.